You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. It is so great to be with you. It's April. It's sunny. Life is good. I want to welcome our visitors today and just say that we're excited you're on our campus. You are always welcome at Asbury University. The chapel frame for today is talking about the the hands of service and the Christian witness, uh, our particular mission, and I'll elaborate on that here in a bit. When I was in college, when I was your age, the President of the United States of America was Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton had a campaign manager by the name of James Carville. Now, Carville was a savvy guy, and in 1992, he wanted to make the Clinton campaign about one thing, the economy. In fact, there was a a slogan associated with the Clinton campaign, and it was, it's the economy, stupid. (laughs) In other words, if you're talking about something other than the economy, you're talking about the wrong thing. And the economy under the Clinton administration actually did pretty well. Unemployment went down. Gross domestic product, our national income, actually went up. And at the end of his presidency, the country was actually cranking out annual surpluses from a budget standpoint, something that has not happened, by the way, in the 21st century. But Clinton's presidency was also known for something else a series of sordid, controversial affairs he had with other women, an abuse of power and deception and a lack of forthrightness about his actions. So much so that this actually led to proceedings from the House of Representatives toward impeachment. And during this time, this raised a question. And the question is this, to what extent can we separate someone's private life from their public life? To what extent is there a relationship between our private self and our public self? Now, this question is not new, and it persists until today even, but it was brought into a kind of focus during Clinton's presidency. Now, to be clear, for Christians, for people of faith, this question is settled. Our private beliefs, our values, our judgments, our convictions should always define who we are in public. In other words, for Jesus followers, there is no separation between who we are in private and who we are in public. Faith was never meant to be confined to some private sphere of our life. Christ and his disciples were not murdered and martyred for their private beliefs. Uh, I'll put it that way. But, but, this raises a whole new set of questions for people of faith that I think we need to give attention to here in 2021. How do I express my faith in public, in the public square? What does it mean to bear witness to what I believe? The encouragement to express our faith is found all throughout Scripture, to share our faith and compel and persuade others to the truth we believe. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. So again, what does this look like 
in 2021. I'm 43 years old. I've been in Christian circles my entire life. I've never had a Bible study. I've never read a book. I don't even think I've ever heard a sermon specifically on what it means to evangelize effectively and faithfully within a cultural moment and period. So my time is very limited. There's no way I'm going to exhaust uh, the, the depths of this question, given the time that we have. But I want to offer for you four considerations for bearing witness to our beliefs and our values as followers of Jesus Christ. You might call these considerations for faith in the public square. All right? So let me jump right into it. Number one, the first consideration is count the cost. And I mean that like literally. <laughs> count the cost. In Luke 14, Jesus tells his followers to count the cost of being a disciple. And when I look at the things in my life that are most important to me, there's a cost. If I want to have a, a rich marriage, there's a cost to that. If I want to be a good family member, there's a cost. If I want to have real, vivid, personal relationships with others, there is a cost to that. My job, if I want to do this effectively, there is a cost. And if I want to exhibit my faith and live into it and be a true sold-out believer, follower of Jesus Christ, there is a cost. There's a great quote uh, paraphrasing Henry David Thoreau. He says, the expense of something is how much life it costs you. It's a great quote. The expense of something is how much life does it cost you? Now, I'm going to say something uh, bold here. <laughs> uh, it, it might come off as judgmental. Uh, it might sound harsh, but I, I hope you receive it in the right spirit. And I've said this before from this pulpit. I never say anything out to a crowd that I don't say to myself. But here it is. If you and I were to appraise, if we were to audit our faith life, and we cannot identify a cost, an expense of life, things that we have to give up, things that we have to give away, sacrifices that we have to endure, growing pains that you and I have to suffer, and ideals and dreams and fantasies that we have to forgo. If we cannot name and identify those things, then we have to question whether our faith is faith if we can't name the cost. Luther said, faith alone will save you, but if your faith is alone, then it's not faith. Jesus, we like to think of Jesus in this docile, you know, holding, uh, uh, stroking a lamb, that kind of thing, uh, but Jesus has a lot of inconvenient statements throughout Scripture. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He says, narrow is the way. He says, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. And he says, lose your life. Cost. The expense of something is how much life it costs. Christian Smith and Melissa Denton are researchers, and years ago they were doing a study on the spirituality of youth and young adults. And you may have heard this expression. It's been used a lot. They, they called it, they summarized it as moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
What do people believe about God and spirituality? It's moralistic. You should just be good. And in the grand scale of your life, your good, your good acts should outweigh your bad acts. And it's therapeutic. God exists to make me feel better. And deism. God is not actively involved in our life. He is tucked into the corner of the universe, ready to come and assist if we need it, but otherwise not involved in our day-to-day operation. Melissa Denton says, what youth appear to believe is that religion is about God responding to the authoritative desires and feelings of people. Authoritative desires. In other words, a God that does not demand anything from me. So the first and perhaps most important consideration for you and I when we think about faith in the public square is that following Jesus Christ has a cost, and the cost is everything. But, but, remember Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Real life, the abundant life, the all-around life, the complete life. Paul says, taking hold of the life that really is life. There is a great cost to our faith life, but the cost is worth it. Number two, people don't want to hear my arguments, and they don't want to hear your arguments. They want to see our life. Propositions today are no longer enough. And what I mean by that are these rational statements, logic, discourse. Now, I'm an educator. I love those things. But that is no longer enough when it comes to bearing witness. Have you seen the bumper sticker? I've mentioned this before. Christians are just like you, but forgiven. Nope, that's not going to cut it today. I've heard people say to others, show me someone who lives the holy life. And the response is, I don't need to show you someone. I don't even need to live holy myself because it's in the Bible and that's all the evidence that you should look for. That's not enough today. That's not enough anymore. This do as I say, not as I do theology, that won't cut it today. Rather, here is the issue before us today. Does your life, does my life point to Jesus Christ? Flannery O'Connor says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. (laughs) Am I odd? Do people look at me and say, boy, I can't figure out Kevin. Are you odd? Because we follow Christ. Are your actions explainable? I love the definition of sanctification by Stanley Harvoss. He says, sacrifice and service that cannot be accounted for on the world's terms. It doesn't make sense to them. Another issue, are you easily categorized? Can someone put you in a box? I was at a conference one year, and at the conference, I was asked on a piece of paper to name my political affiliation. I thought, oh, this will be interesting. I wrote, I am a post-liberal, narrative communitarian, bleeding heart conservative with Anabaptist sympathies. And I had this, this fantasy that someone was shuffling through papers and they would come to Kevin Brown and say, what? What in the world? And I say, amen, what in the world? 
Because if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we're not easily categorizable. Categorizable, yes. We cannot be categorized. I'll put it that way. Are you clamoring to be more like Jesus, where your motion accords with God's will? It's a John Wesley phrase. Where you seek to compel others, not simply with propositions, but to use another Wesley phrase, to compel them with all the violence of love. Who do you love violently? And do you love someone you don't know violently? Do you love an enemy violently? Someone that doesn't even love you back. Even someone that may hate you. Are you seeking to live above reproach, but are you eager and willing to make amends the moment you cross the line of spiritual integrity? Are you asking, how close can I get to the world? Or are you asking, how close can I get to God? Where you ask, not what is permissible, but what is beneficial. Not what is in my best interest, but what is in the interest of others. Not about my rights, but about the edification of the community. Are you furnishing your mind in a Philippians 4-8 manner? What's true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Are you learning not just to listen, but to hear, to really hear? Reverend Jadoff is here, and uh, on her recent birthday, I said, Esther, the best thing I can say about you, among many other things, is you don't simply listen, you hear. That's a great compliment to give to someone. Do you hear? Do you eat the book of Scripture, as Ezekiel 3.1 says? And is it sweet like honey in your mouth? Are you practicing quiet reflection, introspection? And are you in community with others, and not just community where you're friends, but the kind of community where they have permission to speak into the habits and practices of your daily life? That's real community. Again, people are less inclined to your arguments. They're already bombarded with opinions. They're less compelled by mere logic. They want to see your life. Does it work? Because in 2021, Asbury, seen is believing. Simon and Garfunkel was a, a music band I listened to growing up, and they have a song called Kathy's Song. And at the end of it, there's this great lyric. It says, you see, I've come to doubt. All that I once held is true. I stand alone without belief. The only truth I know is you. Great lyric. Because what they're saying is, I am doubting everything. I don't have truth anymore. I don't have anything to believe, but I see truth in a person. Here's why this is significant. I could understand the, the idea of a loving father when it was explained to me because I have a loving father. <laughs> the possibility of living an upright, godly life in this present age was plausible to me because I knew men and women who lived upright, godly lives. The contentedness, the happiness, gratification, and satisfaction that I heard associated with living a virtuous and holy life was believable for me because I saw that lived out in others. The statement, Jesus is Lord, made sense to me because I saw people that were governed by a different citizenship than simply the land that they lived in. In other words, the teachings of Scripture were made plausible because I saw them lived out in others. In summary, let's not just talk about our faith. 
let's live it. That will speak more than the words that we actually use. Our actions are what give purchase to our words. It funds the vocabulary of the statements that we use. Otherwise, it's just hollow. Otherwise, it's vacuous. Otherwise, there's nothing there, and the world will look upon us and just say, I don't believe you. Third, look for cracks. Here's what I mean by that. Leonard Cohen, in his famous song, Anthem, uh, the, the refrain is, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. In his commentary on Charles Taylor's uh, famous 20th century book, A Secular Age, the philosopher Jamie Smith describes an era where people of faith are nevertheless embedded in an environment that is overwhelmingly secular. I'll just say this, the, the cultural capital that has buttressed religious institutions in years past will not exist in the days ahead the way it has in the past. And yet, and yet, Smith says, those who reject the transcendent cannot shake a prevailing sense that there is something more than the flattened, disenchanted material reality propagated by natural or strident naturalists or the likes of the new atheists. In other words, as they say, we are uh, cross-pressured. We are haunted by transcendence. Charles Taylor himself, he says, don't you feel it? Don't you have those moments of either foreboding or on-the-cusp elation where you can't shake the sense that there must be something more to this? So when I say look for cracks, I'm talking about being sensitive to the spiritual intuition that's displayed or exhibited by others. I have a lot of examples. Let me name one. The uh, prophet of my secular youth uh, was Kurt Cobain, the, the lead singer for Nirvana. Cobain could be described as a nihilist. Life is meaningless. And life is painful. Life is meaningless. He went on to tragically take his life through suicide. And families were so worried about uh, Cobain and this kind of grunge rock out of Seattle, and that's bad, and I understand all of that. But after his death, uh, I remember a movie came out called About a Son. It was a documentary. And Cobain says this. He says, I used to think when I was young, I was adopted by my mother because they found me in a spaceship from a different planet. And every night I used to talk to my real parents in my real family in the sky. I knew that there were thousands of other alien babies dropped off and they're all over the place and I've met quite a few of them. It's just something I like to toy with in my mind. It's really fun to pretend that, that there's some special reason for me to be here. I feel really homesick all the time, and so do all the other aliens. Not only have I had the chance to come across a handful of other aliens throughout the rest of my life, eventually, one day, we'll find out what we are supposed to do. Charles Taylor, when he talks about bearing witness in a secular age, says, I don't think you can simply talk others into it. Something has to touch them. I think that people of faith, really remarkable people of faith, manage to touch people by what they are. 
not by the arguments they deploy. Once people get a hint that they are desiring something outside of the imminent frame that they're in, desiring a parent in the sky that knows them and loves them and wants to tell them what to do and says that they have a purpose for their life, then, of course, he says, you can re-describe the situation. Look for the cracks. That's how the light gets in. Let me talk about my fourth consideration here as I wrap up. Uh, new imaginative modalities for how we bear witness. I think one of the biggest misconceptions in the 21st century about culture is if I critique culture, I ipso facto, I by that very fact, change culture. You don't. I don't. We don't change culture because we critique it. We change culture. We influence by producing alternative cultural artifacts. We influence when we produce these alternatives, when we act in alternative ways, when we tell alternative stories. Um, time will not allow me to, to get into what this looks like, but let me just name a few things. And if you ever want to grab coffee, we can have this conversation. Uh, first of all, it means recapturing our words. It means being very precise about what we are saying. Civilizations rise and fall on the words that we use. I'm reading a wonderful book by Marilyn McIntyre on this very issue. Civilizations rise and fall on our words. Do our words mean something? Do they reflect reality? Do they reflect internally what we are feeling when we use them? So learning to be precise. Not oversimplifying ideas or using crude characterizations or slogans. Uh, sloganeering. In other words, when we start talking in empty slogans or hollow aphorisms that have no thought or consideration behind them. So let's deploy our words well. Telling stories. Uh, Oscar Wilde talked about life imitating art. In other words, our practices carry these stories in them. So what are we imitating? And what are the stories inherent in our practices? And how are we telling an alternative story to others? Alison Milbank is a theologian in Britain, and she says, it's this, this is the way that we defend our faith in the 21st century, imaginative apologetics. Tell a different story because stories, they burrow their way into our imaginative landscape and stain and color and re-describe and reorient how we see the world. You want to change the world? Tell a better story. And finally, serve. I love this in 1 Peter where he says, who will criticize you for doing good? Who will criticize you and I for serving? Especially serving people that may not like us. Adding value, edifying the community, finding ways to serve as Christ did. T.M. Levin said that Christians won over others, uh, their Roman contemporaries, because they outthought, they outlived, and they outdied those around them. Let me conclude. The scripture for this time was, uh, I, I chose 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need, as some of you do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are the letter written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you're the letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, 
but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Notice what Paul is saying here. Do I need to write a letter of recommendation for you? Do I need to have one from you? No. You are the letter. Your life is the letter of recommendation. Your words, your intellect, your character, your orientation, your excellence, your uprightness, your compassion, your conviction, your commitment, your relationships, your faith, your Savior, your life, all of you. This is the letter of recommendation for Christ. This is how you bear witness to the hope that is within you. This is how your private life gets played out in public. Is there a cost? Yes. Jesus doesn't want 97% of our lives. He wants 100%. I love that Isaac Watts hymn at the very end, love so amazing, so divine when I survey the wondrous cross, demands my life, my soul, my all, 100%. There's a cost. But is the cost worth it? Asbury, genuinely. Yes. It's worth it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it, as Christ says. And in finding our life, can we encourage others to find their life? May we be the aroma of Jesus Christ in a rotting, rancid world. Hope for the hopeless, a hand for the helpless, love for the unlovely, service for the underserved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather. Thank you, Lord, for this springtime. Thank you for these amazing students. God, I pray that you would help us to think carefully about how we bear witness. Our private life is not meant to be lived in private. But Lord, as we seek to live that out in public, help us to count the cost of being your disciple. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't be reflected in empty words or hollow aphorisms. But Father, in the very life that we live, help us to compassionately, sensitively look for the cracks to tell an alternative story that honors and glorifies you. Father, I pray that every one of us would be the letter, that we would be a living, walking, talking, breathing letter of recommendation for Christ. And let our life say there's a cost but the cost is worth it. Holy Spirit, please do this in our lives. We thank you and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.